This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Wednesday, November the 2nd, Fed Day. That's the main event today. Bank of England tomorrow. But today we're certainly counting you down to 2 p.m. Eastern, which obviously is a little uh, earlier than it normally would be here in the UK because of the four-hour time difference, Alex. Uh, Equity markets are a little softer than NASDAQ in particular, uh, down around 1% right now. The FTSE closing down by six-tenths of 1%. Uh, and a fairly big bid in the UK two-year as well, uh, down by 17.3 basis points today in advance of that Bank of England meeting, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Yeah, we will have special coverage for you coming up uh, in half an hour's time. Uh, Tom Keane, Lisa Bromwitz and John Farrow hosting a Fed special. We'll be taking that live uh, with television as well to kind of walk you through that. Uh, the bond market pretty much going nowhere. The dollar modestly softer. We did get stronger ADP numbers, better jobs numbers like we saw yesterday with JOLTS data, kind of weighs a little bit there on equity because it might make the jobs um, uh, job a little bit uh, harder. So you're going to get all of that preview uh, headed into that 2 o'clock all-important decision. Absolutely. Um, and, and this comes as the warm-up to the Bank of England tomorrow, obviously, um, which is expected to deliver a similar 75 basis points and maybe signal a downshift as well. I joke because the Fed clearly is by far and away the main event. Um, I just think it's amazing that we've come from a position where the Bank of England was going to be hiking much, much more, Alex, uh, only a few weeks back as we were in the middle of the mini budget crisis. Things certainly seem to have stabilised a little bit for the bank. But this is an economy that is hitting the uh, hitting a brick wall right now. And the Bank of England is going to have to be, if the Fed's going to have to be careful, the Bank of England is going to have to be super careful in the way that it manages this event. Yeah, I wonder, though, if the BOE can punt a touch since they don't have all the stuff available from the government yet in terms of the budget and the fiscal plan. If, and I know that they're supposed to make their decisions independently of the government, but if they have a little bit of a pass uh, for this meeting, but the following meeting is when it's really going to get hot under the collar. Yeah. It's going to get it's going to get significantly more tricky. Let's talk. Let's talk more about the Bank of England. Let's kind of set you up for the bank tomorrow. As as Alex says, we'll come back to the to the Fed a little bit later on. So tomorrow, David Goodman will enter the Bank of England and he will descend into the bowels of the bank to painful. the lockup, <laughs> which I understand he was just telling me actually is way below the tube line. It is deep, deep, deep in terms of uh, where they where they put the uh, put the reporters uh, because they they don't want them communicating. They will get the information. They will get to write their stories, and when the deadline breaks. It will wash out across the Bloomberg terminal. David joins us now in anticipation of this event. It may be his last, but you never know. David, um, let's talk a little bit about what is happening here. This is a Bank of England that a few weeks ago was on the ropes. It was having to manage a crisis um, within the mortgage, within the uh, within the pension industry. Mortgage rates were were surging to the upside. We had a mini budget that had completely uh, come unstuck. Where are we now relative to where we were then? Um, I think we are in a better position for the bank. I think in terms of the bank's own position within the UK, before the mini budget, people were asking questions about the bank. People were talking about they're messing up on inflation and various other things. Trust spent in the summer saying, we're going we're gonna to revisit your mandate. We're going to yeah. make all these changes. 
and then everything went wrong and the bank stepped in and and helped prevent the crisis you can ask questions about whether they should have seen the crisis coming and done different things ahead of time we're not going to give them a pass on that but as ever in the heat of the crisis they acted quickly and and they they helped solve the problem in terms of interest rates obviously as as they're kind of in the peak of that market turmoil we were pricing in 200 basis points of hikes by by tomorrow i think buy is crucial there because people were thinking the situation was so bad they'd have to do an emergency rate hike maybe 100 basis points emergency rate hike and then another 100 basis points in uh, tomorrow's meeting or tomorrow's decision rather now we're back down to 75 is is, is the base case um mm-hmm. we've even seen some market doubts emerge about that we're now we're pricing in fewer than 75 basis points now which is would have been unthinkable a few weeks ago but i think everyone is if it isn't 75 it will be a, a big shock i think um david what are going to be the questions at the presser? Is it going to be about downshifting or is it going to be about the government's fiscal plans? I think it'll depend on what message we get out of the um, out of the minutes. I think recently, uh, apart from the November chat, we've heard from the BOE that they think that they need to end up at a lower position than the market is expecting. Broadbent gave a speech where he was saying, like, if we get above 5%, that's going to have serious consequences for the economy. So if they say we've taken rates to 3% now and we're going to slow down or we're going to like yeah regulate yep. the price of high here that that would be that would be interesting i think knowing a lot of the uk press they all talk a lot about the government because that's obviously the big issue and one question is about the boe's forecast like these forecasts are based for what feels like it's the second meeting in the roads it's, it's even like one of many times in the last few few years they're based off a world that probably doesn't really exist because they're talking about that they're based on fiscal policy that we don't know yet so the bank can't factor that in so all the spending cuts or tax hikes that are going to come from the government they won't be part of the policy they're based off an interest rate curve which is which was still showing rates going well above five percent when the forecast window closed and and that world probably doesn't exist anymore the bank is saying that doesn't exist so we're going to have this probably quite bad forecast they might not be quite as bad as august when we didn't have any energy help factored in because that was another question that the government hadn't answered so i think we're probably gonna it's probably going to be a a messy set of forecasts they probably will show a recession but again like when they when we look at those forecasts we have to remember that they're they're probably quite unlikely to come to pass let's talk a little bit about the effect that policy is having and it's often talked about that, that central banks' policy works with longer variable lags. Is this time different? How should we be thinking about the effectiveness of the rate rises that are being delivered at the moment? How effective are they in bringing down inflation? In terms of affecting the, the main driver of inflation, which is obviously energy costs, yep. nothing, next to nothing. They say that. They've told us that from the very start. There's nothing we can do about that. It's trying to lean against the these kind of second order effects weight rage pressures that kind of thing obviously if we get a recession and the exactly that might do that job for it the boe i think one interesting thing you mentioned the mortgage market earlier normally in the uk you've got the transmission mechanism through the mortgage market is is pretty broken because only 20 percent of households who have a mortgage are on variable rate mortgages that's around I think it's around about 6% of total households in the UK get mm-hmm. immediately impacted by a rate hike because they've got a variable yeah. mortgage. What we've seen now is that we've seen, because of what happened in the mini budget, we've seen mortgage rates shoot up, as you said. They're above 6% still on, on for two-year mortgages. Mm-hmm. That has an impact 
beyond anything the BPOE does because that makes people make decisions differently. It makes them save more, makes them worry about their future, that kind of thing. I think what will be interesting is what how much what happens tomorrow actually feeds through to the mortgage market to to, to this point and not mortgage market related but to the point of the feed through the rate hikes there's an article um on the bloomberg talking about how the repo rate is falling which is watering down the impact of boe hikes because there's just so much demand uh for the cheap collateral that there's a spread of like 43 basis points which shouldn't be the case and that's really hampering what the boe can do yeah i think and i think that's the other side of this like I was actually talking to Greg Ritchie, who wrote that, that that great article just a few minutes ago, and we were saying that you've kind of got two sides of it. You've got the mortgage thing that I was just talking about earlier, and then you've also got the the Ronia issue, which is which what you were talking about. So I think the bank will be watching that carefully. The ECB have certainly talked a lot about how repo rates are, are affecting things. I think the BOE haven't mentioned it quite so much. They've been fairly happy with how things are filtered through so far. But it will be really interesting to see if that does feature in their discussions or their minutes tomorrow, because as you say, it's a big, it's a big issue. It's a big issue for transmission, which is what they're very concerned about. David, good stuff. Good luck tomorrow. Thank you very much indeed for dropping by to see us uh, to preview uh, the Bank of England rate decision tomorrow. As David says, the expectation is that we get a 75 basis point hike. But where do we go from there? Maybe we'll get some answers tomorrow. Thank you very much indeed. Up next, what's happening with the global economy? The shipping sector is slowing down. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in the UK. So if you're going to want to get a pulse on the economy, shippers are really the best way to do it. Freight rates are high if demand is high, and then when demand falls off, freight rates fall. So the per- the, the company really plugged into this uh, is Maersk, AP Muller Maersk. Um, And they had some really concerning things to say about the global economy when it comes to inflation and when it comes to growth. Uh, The CEO, Soren Sku, said that demand is going to shrink this year and could contract in 2023. Europe could be in a recession. U.S. could be next. It was pretty grim. Anyway, he spoke with Bloomberg's Mark Cudmore uh, earlier today on Bloomberg Television. Volumes are down. Uh, global trade volumes are down. Uh, our own volumes are down 7% uh, uh, for the first nine months of the year compared to, to last year. Uh, we see that uh, as a, being driven by a number of factors. Uh, certainly, uh, durable goods uh, are down. Probably a lot of people over-invested uh, in, in durable goods in, in the early part of the pandemic. Uh, and then, of course, we see the effect of the slowing economy, uh, the, 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 the war in Europe and, and what that has done to consumer uh, confidence. So, so all in all, uh, uh, global trade is, is moving backwards uh, this year. Soren, as you say, it's going backwards. This is a very, very bleak outlook. I'm trying to understand how dramatic this is for the global economy. You know, you've had an, a, an awesome third quarter, but now you're rapidly downgrading <laughs> forecasts. That's the same story we've seen in GDP prints. We've seen great GDP prints for third quarter around the world, but we've suddenly seen PMIs for October be super negative. Does this mean that we're like going to recession much quicker than we were thinking only a month ago? I think part of it is pandemic effects. Uh, many of us bought a new TV and a new couch and a new barbecue during the pandemic because we didn't have anything else to spend our money on. And, and obviously, that will be a few uh, a few years before we have to do that uh, again. So, so, so part of this is front loading, if you will, on on, on goods uh, spending that happened early in the pandemic, and and if and that's impacting negatively now. But the other part is that the 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 economy has has slowed slowed down certainly. 
if you like I do live in Europe, it's it's really hard to be uh, very optimistic with a uh, with the war on our doorstep and a, and a big energy crisis uh, uh, in this this winter. So so mm. that is uh, impacting consumer demand, uh, consumer uh, confidence, and therefore also also demand. I think it's quite likely that we either are or will soon be in a in a in a recession, uh, certainly in Europe, but potentially also in the U.S. That was uh, Soren Scope, the CEO of AP Muller-Mask, joining us from Denmark a little bit earlier on. Alex, um, what what he is seeing, I think, is really interesting. What he's seeing is a demand slowdown, rates are coming down, but costs are remaining relatively elevated. Now, Mm -hmm. there's a labour cost kind of portion of that. There's also a a part of the cost structure which is based on energy and that's going to remain relatively elevated so it's going to be interesting to see ultimately how far freight rates can fall but he certainly sees the demand situation getting significantly weaker from here not just in europe but it's the us as well he doesn't see the Mm -hmm. us too far behind no and then you wrap that in with the pmis uh, that we got out of europe for example they were pretty terrible (laughs) Uh, on the manufacturing level we knew they were going to be bad and then they got even worse um and what you mentioned in terms of the us is the us has been holding up relatively well uh, in comparison to Europe, for example. So the fact that he also singled out the U.S. that could get into recession as well was a little bit worrisome. I mean, he basically laid out the worst case scenario, growth slowing and costs not coming down. Like that was that was a stagflation problem that he just outlined. It, it is. And, and, and to come back to the central banks, what do they do with that? Um, it, it's a real they challenge. They have to wait, I guess. They have to wait. They want the demand to come down, right? So then they just have to sit and wait and, and, and hope that inflation rolls over well, right? Well, ultimately, yeah, that's got to be the hope. Yeah. But it's it's a question of how embed and and, and it, the finessing of this uh, of the rate policy is really difficult at that point. I think. Yeah. Um, because yes, you want the real economy to do some of the work, but but nevertheless, you have to discourage a cycle, so you have to break the cycle which may mean sort of relatively high rates for a short period of time. I think it's a really difficult challenge. Well, I also think that if you wind up having inflation that stops going up, it doesn't mean that it comes down rapidly. And that's what I felt was really interesting about what, it, what, what Marisco was saying, that um, it can still it, it can have topped out, but it's not going to be a, a rapid decline. And, and I think that that's a problem, that, that if we stay, and we've talked about this before, if we stay around 5%, 6% for inflation, what does the Fed do with something like that? Anyway, uh, we're going to have much more from the C-Suite talking about Wizz Air and Trivago. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Wizz Air is now a 35% bigger airline than pre-pandemic, so it's not only that we recovered from the pandemic, but we were able to deliver substantial growth in the, uh, in the marketplace. Looking at uh, what's in front of us, we are very confident uh, in, the, uh, in, in consumer demand. That was Joseph Ferrari. He is the CEO of Wizz Air, the low-cost carrier operating out of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, he is, by nature, an optimistic man. You have to be an optimistic person, mm-hmm. I think, to, to be the CEO, Alex, of a low-cost carrier. But they are starting to curtail some of their winter operations, which they thought they would be running. I think they thought that the, the demand that we've seen out of the summer would continue at a higher level into winter. We're starting now, I think, to see the effects of the, the, the wall of problems that is hitting the consumer. And it's starting to feed through into the low-cost carrier sector. Well, OK. Correct me if I'm mistaken, but if if demand is getting shrunk and people are pinching their purses, shouldn't that be really good for low cost carriers? I thought that was the whole thing that it was going to be hard for like the big guys, but not for the little guys. So I think so. I think what's happening here is that 
the low-cost carriers, so Wizz Air and Ryanair, think about them kind of in the same bucket, they had anticipated that what they could do is they could dump a bit of capacity onto the system over this winter or maybe take away some market share. They were expecting demand to hold up. We saw this very strong demand out of summer in through in through the winter. It's not that people aren't going to be trading down towards them. It's just that people won't be traveling at all. And and I think that's where the change is, is starting to come through. Mm. People that were anticipating taking trips maybe aren't going to. I think what's also interesting is that you are getting some of the long-haul carriers talking about the fact that demand is still there for long-haul travel. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, there's a two different markets here that you're talking about. I think there are people still coming out of the pandemic that are saying, you only live once, I'm getting old, I want to take that take that holiday. And I think that part of the market is still persisting. And they're also prepared to pay for that. But I think some of the more discretionary stuff, am I going to go away for the weekend, maybe starting to fade out of the system a little bit this winter. So it's going to be really interesting to see how the low-cost guys fare. I think, they, I think you need to see them as two different markets. I think people will trade down, mm-hmm. but maybe they just trade down to not traveling at all. So to that point, uh, we also spoke to the Travago CEO, Axel Hefer, and he said something similar in terms of how people are booking and how they're looking at vacations versus, say, they did right during the pandemic or right after the pandemic. Here's part of the conversation that he had with Guy and I earlier today. The summer was very strong, as expected, and um, for the next 12 months, um, what we are expecting is the overall market um, to, to, to go up, yeah? so overall spending to increase. Um, and, um, and if you then go one level deeper, the prices will continue to rise, which means that, um, and there I agree with, with my colleague, that consumers are trying to reduce um, the cost and compensate partially for the price increases. And um, there are basically three things that you can do, and we also see first signs of uh, consumers doing that. The first one is that you can reduce the length of your trip. And in, de- in developed Europe, uh, or, or in Western Europe, um, you see first signs of that. The second one is that you can uh, be more flexible with the destination you travel to. Either you go to a destination where you don't have to fly, so where you can um, save on the transportation, or you go to a destination that is overall um, cheaper. And the third one is that you compare prices more for your accommodation. And mm-hmm. um, that's obviously great for us because that's what we do. Um, do you get the impression that the trend of a lot of Americans going to Europe is going to continue? That was like a huge tailwind for a lot of these travel people uh, over the last six months. And I mean like airlines, hotels, etc. Do you expect that to be the case in the next six to 12 months? I, I have no idea what the exchange rate will do, but as long as the exchange rate is as favorable, I do expect that trend to continue. And I mean, London right now is globally our number one destination. And in particular for U.S. travelers, the top European cities are extremely attractive. So what are people searching for right now? And what are you seeing in terms of the shifts? As you say, people may be going less far. But that is at odds with what airlines like Lufthansa and IAG are telling us. They're saying that long haul is starting to come back. So I'm curious as to where people are actually looking at. Yeah, I mean, the, um, our, our, um, our visibility is, is a bit different than, than from some of the airlines. So we tend to, our users tend to use us uh, more with 30 to 60 days um, before they travel. So what we see is that the big cities are on top of the list. Um, you also have uh, more sunny destinations like, um, like Dubai, Abu Dhabi, um, Marrakesh, Morocco, um, very, very popular. 
Um, so it's it's so far it is still pretty broad, pretty much um, all the top destinations are very um, very attractive and sought after. But what we see is that there are first signs of people going more to second and third tier destinations. But that that is just starting. So um, so I guess it will be interesting to see whether that trend continues over the next couple of months. Um, Axel, for you as a business, how are your costs holding up? How are your input costs um, being managed through this time? Are, are you noticing higher labor? Are you noticing uh, different issues along those lines when it comes to say, inflation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, we had um, even before the, um, the the crisis really started this year. I mean, last year the labor market was extremely hot. We had um, very strong um, salary increases, very high salary increases. Um, and that's also what you have to plan for this year and next year. Um, what we've done in summer is um, we have actually focused um, all our efforts on our core product, which is you know a price comparison product for hotels, which um, is is the most relevant product from our perspective in the current market, which um, allowed us to to compensate for these price increases. And because of that, we do expect actually a lower cost base next year than um, than we are having this year. Axel Hefer talking to us uh, a little bit earlier, the CEO of Trivago joining us from Dusseldorf. What he is saying, I think, is that there are a couple of trends that are still working. U.S. travelers coming to, the, to, to Europe certainly helps. But my sense from what he said is there's a, there's a lack of visibility right now. And trying to figure out what the consumer is going to be doing is really, really difficult. And I think that mm-hmm. is just writ large across the entire economy at the moment. I continue to be confounded by by consumer behavior. I think a lot of people are. Well, also to that point, and you asked him later, is that there's been so much travel trauma over the last six months and everyone has their own horror story. And if that's really putting people off, he was like, no, I think it's okay. People just get used to it. I don't know about that. Yeah. I would seriously rethink my travel after my travel experience. Like driving seems a lot more interesting than going on a flight that could take me 16 hours, even though it should take me two. I'm also still bitter. Uh, Okay, Fed, up next, half an hour away. This is Bloomberg.